this evening. I don't want to take much time in the way of review, but to move forward in this study of prayer. This morning we covered the attitude of proper prayer. Remember, the attitude includes delighting in the Lord. The proper attitude includes coming in humility. The proper attitude includes coming with boldness. The proper attitude includes persistence, which I'll give you to be the most important of these attitudes for effective prayer. Now, you know the importance I place on delighting in the Lord. However, when it comes to prayer, you may delight in the Lord, but it's easy to give up before you finish. And when, when do you finish prayer? When God's answered it. And God is going to test your persistence or your importunity as that one particular friend had in Scripture. Before we look at the manner of effectual prayer this evening, let's ask God's blessing on our effort. Holy Father in heaven, we worship and adore Thee, O Lord, knowing that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from Thee. We also know that any degree of understanding that we have comes from Thy Holy Spirit. And now we pray that You will grant that spirit of illumination in the knowledge of Thy will to each of us, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of Thee. And that includes answers to prayer. O Lord, teach us to pray in the next few minutes that we might become princes with Thee. That is, that we might have power and be able to prevail with Thee for those things that are needful for us and those things that You have ordained that we ought to pray for. Lord, be with us now by Thy Spirit for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, the increase of His kingdom and His church here in Greenville. Amen. The manner of effectual prayer. Now, the attitude of effectual prayer is how you approach it. What are you thinking when you pray? Are you reminding yourself, I ought to be bold? You know, I've met men and women in this congregation. Let's get it close to home so that you think I'm talking about you. I've met individuals in this congregation. You've had a sin in the past in your life. And you keep coming and asking, how can I forget it? How can I get over the conviction I have for that particular sin. Oh, that requires an attitude of boldness. And that boldness is from Hebrews chapter 10, where if God said, if you confess your sins, I will be faithful and just to forgive you your sins. If you keep remembering a sin, do you know what you're saying about God? He's neither faithful nor is he just. It's a lack of faith on your part. You ought to come boldly. All of those little clues that I gave you this morning, I can't go over them again or we'll never leave the subject of prayer. But I gave you those descriptions of a proper attitude this morning so that when you pray, you're praying in a way in which pleases God. Praying with the understanding. Delighting in the Lord. Praying with persistence. And all the other aspects we looked at, praying with faith, praying in submission to the will of God, that's an important one there. You'll sometimes think you have it figured out. I thought I had it figured out with Bob Hagler when he was in Florida. Do you remember? Bob remembers and I remember. 
I thought I had it figured out, but the Lord's will in that matter was superior to mine. Did I get abundantly above all that I asked or thought relative to the Hagler family? Did I ever ask for the Durans? Did I ever think about the Durans? No. See how God fulfills His promises? All I prayed for is get Bob a job in Greenville so he can be here with the congregation. He is here. So my request was answered. But I got a whole lot more, didn't I? Durans? Nykirks? And who knows what else could happen as a result of that? Able to do exceeding abundantly. Do you come to God with confidence in those promises? If you don't, you're going to cut yourself short. You'll never cut God short. Listen, God's going to do what He chooses to do, and He'll get all the glory whether you pray or not or whether you pray effectually or not. You're cutting yourself short if you don't have that type of confidence in praying. And believe me, that lesson taught me something about prayer. I don't pray as presumptuously as I once did, nor do I rebuke so presumptuously as I once did because I trust God to a greater degree relative to human effort than I may have two years ago. I'm thankful for that lesson. It doesn't bother me to get up and admit that to all of you. I'm thankful to God that I can trust in Him to a greater degree. Michael Nykirk, you know I'm not hot and heavy on your back like I was Bob Hagler's about getting here to Greenville because I believe that God will reward those who diligently seek Him. We're diligently seeking him. I know that Michael Nykirk is, and I know that Margaret is, and his family. He will be here in the best time. And I believe that. So I cast my care on him, and I have a great deal of peace about the whole matter. The manner of effectual prayer. I want to deal with some specifics about how you go about praying. Not what's in the prayer. That's going to be next Sunday. But the manner of praying. First of all, let's look at Psalm 5 and verse 3. When should you pray? Where should you pray? How should you pray? What position should you pray in? All of those questions that may lend themselves to more effectual prayer by thinking about some prayer warriors that are given to us in Scripture, men who were able to prevail with God in prayer. Now, David spoke of praying at a certain time of the day. How many of you have tried praying in the evening and found it uh, difficult, to say the least? You know, just before you go to bed, you know, you're yawning every 30 seconds. Your mind is wandering. Now, some of you may be what we call night owls or, and are able to pray at night. Some of us may not be able to pray to the same degree at night. David has a recommendation for us that you might want to consider. Psalm 5 and verse 3. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. In the morning is a time to pray according to David. Now, did David receive any answers to prayer? From keeping sheep to the king of Israel from keeping sheep to the Father of Jesus Christ, he received some answers to prayer. In the morning, he would direct his prayer to God. 
Look at Psalm 88 and verse 13 on the same point. Psalm 88 and verse 13. But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee. The word prevent has changed somewhat from its usage in 1600s. It means to precede. My prayer shall precede thee in the morning. David is going to arise in the morning, and his prayer will precede God. Now, precede what about God? Psalm 119 and 147. Being that God is king of heaven and earth, that he is extremely jealous, and that he's always taken a great deal of care to instruct us on the importance of coming to him, how reverential do you think it is to make your prayer life nothing but a few words before you hit the sack at night? Uh, where is God getting the priority when you do that? Just think about that for a minute. Is God king? But if you live your whole day, and who are you living it for? Gener I mean, all of your activities are geared towards yourself, towards your family. Oh, yes, you may be doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I hope that you are, and I pray that you are. But at the end of the day, you've been engaged in all of your activities, and now it's time to give the Lord his two minutes. Think about it from that standpoint and see if David doesn't have something good in mind when he says in the morning, I'll direct my prayer to thee. Psalm 119 and verse 147. I prevented. Here's what David pre prevented. This is what David preceded. I preceded the dawning of the morning and cried. I hoped in thy word. Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. Are you able... And are you willing to try to get up earlier than you're presently getting up in order to have time for prayer? Not only did David give us that as an example, but it makes good sense, doesn't it? To show God, I will seek you first. Before I do anything else in the day to distract my mind, before I get into circumstances where I need your assistance, I'll seek your assistance first, not after the fact after we've got ourselves into trouble, and at night we're praying, God, deliver me from what I did today. And there is a difference there. I mean, we ought to go to God first. He is the king. When do you give him your attention? The Bible gives us to believe here that we ought to give him some attention in the morning. Now look at Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. While I'm in Isaiah 26, may I run a short rabbit back to delight thyself also in the Lord? Here's a verse for you. You want peace in your life? Verse 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. You want peace? Keep your mind on God. Notice that doesn't say even His Word. 
It doesn't say his doctrine, his church, your friends, God's saints, but God. And you'll find peace. End of rabbit trail. Verse 9. With my soul, Isaiah says, have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. You know this AIDS epidemic is fulfilled in that verse, is it not? When thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Isn't that a fulfillment? But in order for us to promote His righteousness, His judgment in the earth, we need to be seeking God for God to manifest Himself in our society. And Isaiah did that in the night. He did it early. When His Spirit was within Him for prayer, He did it early. Are you an early prayer or are you a late prayer? Now, I'm not going to condemn prayers at night for reasons I'll show you in just a moment. The Bible doesn't just say the morning. But think about the priority you're giving God. Or are you unwilling to get up that extra 15 minutes early to pray? 15 minutes. You know a good encyclopedia salesman could convince you that 15 minutes a day is nothing. And you ought to be able to get up early and do that. Are you able to get up and pray? How do you show to God that your prayer is fervent? Is fervency, you've pulled the covers back on the bed and you're about to hit that pillow, oh, I need to pray. And you let God have a few minutes. Is that as fervent as setting that alarm clock 15 minutes early when it goes off, you smash the nightstand beside the bed because you want that 15 minutes and you realize God is more important. And you get out of that sack and you give God early in the day some time. What's If I did that and you knew about it, which would you consider more fervent? What do you consider more fervent, at night or in the morning? Think about it. David here gives us a good example and Isaiah gives us some good instruction. Look at how early Jesus prayed. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Now the disciples, when they heard Jesus pray... They wanted to be taught how to pray. Well, the Bible tells us when Jesus prayed. We're dealing with the manner of prayer. When, how, what position, so forth. Mark chapter 1 and verse 35. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. What I'm laying before you right now is the difference between 20th century religion and New Testament religion. If you want to have an effect with God like Elijah, like David, like the apostles, like Jesus Christ, you're not going to get there following 20th century description of a prayer life. You're going to get there following this book. Rising up early, a great while before day. And listen, I live in the 20th century too. When I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. I'm the one that labored with this for weeks, for years, before it ever got to this church. I know how difficult it is to get up early and to set aside time to beg God. Everything in your body will cry against it. 
Everything this world can throw at you will keep you busy enough late in the evening until you are unable to get up. I know that. But what I'm setting before you this day and two weeks ago and three weeks ago and next Lord's Day is this fact. Do you want a prayer life like the average 20th century Christian or do you want a prayer life uh, like those champions in Scripture that we described? The choice is yours. I'm giving you the menu. The first ingredient is to rise early and to show God a commitment. Jesus prayed that way and Jesus Christ had his prayers heard. Now, not only did they pray in the morning, let's go look at a fact that David and Daniel both prayed three times a day. Look at Psalm 55. Psalm 55. We live in a society that it's hard to grasp what I just covered. We, our life is so soft and so easy. We work so little. There, there, there's so little pain and toil and things in our lives requiring patience. That what I just described about rising early to pray just sounds foreign to our generation. I know that. And if it doesn't sound foreign to you, you're lost in a cloud somewhere because it's foreign to our generation. The kind of dedication the men in the Word of God had. You know, Paul told us it wasn't going to get better. He said that men would be lovers of their own selves rather than God. They'd be lovers of pleasure rather than God. And one of the pleasures of life is sleep. Psalm 55 and verse 17. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. I find it interesting Notice how I read the Word of God. I read evening and morning and at noon, and I realize that's not in the order we would list them. We would say morning and noon and evening. Why is it in that order? Can you think of the title of a sermon I've preached in this church that explains why it's in that order? Living life one day at a time. The evening and the morning were the first day. When does a day start in God's reckoning? The evening prior to it. That's when you ought to be praying for the next day. Then in the morning you get up and continue that prayer, and at noon while you're in the middle of that day, or actually toward the end of the 24-hour period, you continue to pray. Scriptural pattern. Evening and morning and at noon. David said he would pray. You all know the story of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6 it says, As his manner was, he prayed three times daily with his face toward Jerusalem. Look at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Now we know about praying in the morning. We looked at several examples of that. Now let's look at praying at noon. Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is on his way to find Peter. Verse 9. The two soldiers are looking for Peter. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up, up, upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Do you know when the sixth hour is? Twelve noon. The day started with sunrise at 6 a.m. approximately, and the hours of the Jewish calendar were counted from six o'clock that way. At the sixth hour, it was twelve noon. And yet we can read in the same place that Cornelius prayed at three o'clock in the afternoon. 
because that seemed to be the hour of prayer set aside by the Jews. You can read that the apostles in Acts chapter 4, I believe it is, or Acts chapter 3, went up about the ninth hour to pray in the temple. And here Cornelius prayed about the ninth hour. You can see that in verse 3. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day. You see, he tells us that he was praying at that time in verse 30. He said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. Acts chapter 10 and verse 30. There's praying in the afternoon. What we would call the afternoon. You know what three o'clock in a Jewish calendar is becoming? Evening. Evening. Evening starts in what we call the afternoon. From three o'clock on, evening is beginning. Remember, that's when you were to take that Passover lamb and prepare it before you got to 6 p.m. And you did that in the evening of the 14th day of the first month of the year. When should you pray? Place a premium on praying in the morning to show your fervency to God and to follow the example of these men. Second, place the next level of priority on praying at night for the next day, as David taught us to do in Psalm 55, in that order. Evening and morning and at noon. And then, if you can, set aside a time during the day when otherwise, like the Muslims, you know, they are scriptural in a point, aren't they? They break up their day of activity to pray. Stop their activity. Business is shut. You know, they pull the shutters and go out and pray in the middle of the day. Why is that important? You're stopping all of your activity. You have those daylight hours. You know, our society is so bent on pleasure, we have daylight savings time oh, to save us a minute of daylight to have more fun. Right? Isn't that why we have daylight savings time? We've got to fill our lives with pleasure. But to pray in the afternoon, what does that require? Canceling your activities for a short period of time. Remember, some of you may be saying, may have said, you can't say it now, what does it mean to pray fervently? I'm telling you right now. You want to show God you're fervent in prayer? You'll give up some things. Sleep and activity. Oh, listen, if you pray effectually and, God's, and God hears your prayers and He will hear your prayers, you'll get far more done with a little prayer in your life than without it. Some, someone might say, I can't afford to take time off to pray in the middle of the afternoon. I'll say you can't afford not to take time off in the afternoon to pray. I can't afford to go with, le with less sleep. You can't afford not to. When was the last time you cried while you prayed? Well, I'm not a crier, someone says. And to some degree that's true. To some degree that's true. Some of us cry more easily than others. But weeping while you're praying is totally appropriate. It indicates the fervent heart. A fervent heart is a heart that is concentrating so much on what they want from God and on God Himself that it will result in tears from time to time, especially when the request is a serious one. How about Jesus Christ? Look at Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. You say Jesus Christ wouldn't cry. I mean, He was the Son of God. He was above tears. Some of you men think tears are a sign of weakness. 
Remember the example I used in the Word of God? David's 37 chosen men. Do you remember what kind of men they were? They were vagabonds and debtors that didn't pay their debts that flocked to David when he was a renegade from Saul. Do you remember? Were they tough? The toughest this world's ever seen, believe me. Those 37 bodyguards of David, when King Saul died, what did they all do? Weep bitterly. Can you imagine a man who killed 600 Philistines with a stick, crying bitterly for Saul? Can you imagine men who circumcised 200 Philistines to earn a dowry for uh, David, crying bitterly? They did it. It's not a sign of weakness. Jesus Christ was the strongest man that ever graced this earth. And listen to what Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 tells us, who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. There's a prayer that was answered by Jesus Christ, and it wasn't just weak crying, it was strong crying. If you've got something that is plaguing you that you want deliverance from, when was the last time you strongly cried with tears to God? Now, don't make them up. I'm not talking about poking yourself in the eye. The, the, the H2O with salt flowing from your eye cavity is not the thing itself. It is the emotion and fervency that results in that. I hope that wasn't my fault. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 tells us that Jesus Christ was heard and known for strong crying and tears. Do you practice that kind of praying? What did Hannah do when she prayed? Wept bitterly. Did she get her son? How long did it take? Not very long. Who's my favorite crier? 2 Kings chapter 20. You've got to see it again. 2 Kings chapter 20, this is how, you know, tears can cut short the persistence that may be required out of you. You believe that? Jesus Christ didn't pray long before angels came and comforted him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hannah had to wait nine months. Now, was that a long time? <laughs> That's what every woman waits before she has her son. I mean, when Eli said the word, she went back and she conceived. She waited nine months and she had her son. Hezekiah is my man when it comes to tears. This is precious. If, if you ever have thought about crying while praying, verse 1, I want to read this again. It is so good relative to the subject of prayer. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass, this is verse 4, afore Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again, and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee, on the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord. 
God heard the prayer. How long is it? Wait till I get to uh, lengthy prayers. I know that's a Pharisee burden that Pharisees have tried to put on you thinking that a fervent prayer is a long prayer. Find me a long prayer in the Word of God. You won't find one. Now, you'll find men who prayed long, but you won't know what they prayed. Jesus prayed all night long in certain cases. Jacob wrestled all night long. But notice the prayers like Hezekiah. Was Hezekiah's an effectual prayer? Isaiah didn't even make it to the middle court. How long was it? Oh, about five-sixths of a verse. But he cried. The point I want to make is the tears. I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. What made the prayer of Hezekiah effectual? He verbalized his petition to God, and he cried. What made the prayer of Jesus Christ effectual? He verbalized his petition to God, and he cried with strong crying and tears. Why, in Judges chapter 21, you can read about a public prayer meeting that Israel held when the whole nation cried. Now, that isn't something that fits with our generation, is it? The whole congregation cried. You can overdo tears. When we've overdone tears, I'll preach a sermon on the fact that you can overdo tears. We're so far from overdoing crying and praying that we need not even worry about the point. When was the last time you prayed with tears? Another thing you can do to help your prayer life is to fast and deprive yourselves of other physical pleasures to make your prayers more effectual. Pain does not merit God's favor, or Elijah would have been using the knives on Mount Carmel instead of the prophets of Baal. But Elijah didn't use a knife because pain does not merit God's favor. Listen, there's nothing you can do to merit God's favor. We're seeking grace in prayer. We're not seeking a wage for our efforts. But pain does manifest our fervency in prayer. Now, the Bible nowhere tells us to cut ourselves, maim ourselves, whip ourselves in the back, or crawl through streets in Mexico with crosses on our back to earn penance with the church or with God. Nowhere are we told to do those things, but we are told to do some things, and one of those things is fasting. I've preached a whole sermon on fasting. I believe that probably half of you or better, maybe most of you, maybe all of you, were convicted when I preached that sermon on fasting. I ought to make that a part of my life. I may not do it every week, but I ought to make it a part of my life. I'm trying to have a practical ministry with this church. Ask yourselves, how many times in the last 12 months have you fasted for the sake of prayer? Not for health purposes, but for the sake of prayer. That'll sober us all, won't it? Look at Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. In Ephesians chapter 6, we have listed for us, you turn to Matthew 17 and I'll talk about Ephesians 6, we have listed for us the armor that God wants a Christian to take to withstand the wiles of the devil. Remember, all of the armor is defensive. 
except the Word of God, which is the only offensive weapon we have. Remember, Jesus Christ used that offensively against the devil in the wilderness. And there's one activity other than standing, you know, therefore we're to stand in that armor, that we're to be doing. What is that activity? Praying with all perseverance in the Spirit. Ephesians 6, 18 and 19. Prayer is the means by which we defeat the wiles of the devil. Now let me show you that you better add fasting to that prayer at times if you want God's strength in your life against Satan or in the lives of your children. Now look, Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 is Christ's transfiguration. He comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. A man runs up to him and says, verse 15, Lord, have mercy on me, my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. Now let's, please stop reading. Don't get ahead of me. I want, there's important information here. I was a lunatic. What's a lunatic? A man who's irrational, partly insane, or mostly insane. I was an irrational teenager. Now, I may not have thrown myself into fire, and I may not have thrown myself into deep water trying to drown myself. That's irrational behavior naturally. I was as irrational. I had been taught a lot by my parents, but for five years I was a lunatic. I'll tell you why I believe I was a lunatic. The wiles of the devil. I don't believe that boy had anything against him that I didn't have. You say, well, he was demon-possessed. Who said I wasn't? I, I mean, I don't like talking about that fact. But the hatred and irrationality that governed me for five years, I can't ascribe it to anything else. It wasn't natural. Even animals know to treat their parents better than I treated mine. We all have a pile of children. They're going to do irrational things. Sometimes you may call them lunatics. Sometimes they may behave like lunatics. And I'm not saying that in a jesting way. I mean they may act irrational. They may not throw themselves in the fire but they go and do things that you've warned them against and taught them against and they've heard preached against in church and you'll say, what in the world is motivating them? They're irrational. When you see an irrational person, I'll tell you where it comes from. Demons. What caused pigs to run over a cliff and jump in the water? Demons. What caused Jews to witness a man named Jesus Christ who fulfilled every Bible prophecy of the Messiah and performed miracles for three and a half years right before their eyes to hang him on a cross and crucify him. What caused that behavior? Jesus described that generation as ending up with seven times the demons he had cast out of it. Matthew chapter 23. Isn't that correct? Remember Jesus said, I cast them out. And then they come back and they find the house all swept and clean and they go and get seven more, worse than they are, and the last state of that man, and he goes on to describe it as a generation is worse than he was in the beginning. 
A man comes to Jesus Christ, a father praying for a son. Now, see, you may read this passage and not make it practical. This is a father praying for a son. I had a father pray for this son, and I thank God he did. Job prayed for his children. Lord, isn't that a prayer in verse 15? Lord, have mercy on me, my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Ineffectual prayers, weren't they? Ineffectual praying. Then Jesus answered and said in verse 17, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? Now this should be an important question and an important answer to parents in the 20th century. In any century. And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, not enough faith. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. How be it? <clears throat> a word of advice. Faith is good, but faith needs fasting. How be it? This kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. I know, I just took a number of minutes elaborating on Matthew 17. If God, God helping me, soon I will preach a series on child training. But there's only so much you can do in child training. You didn't create that soul. You didn't even give it the personality it has. You didn't create its physical development. You didn't create its personality development. A lot of that God's determined in his book before you ever thought of having the child. It's like having a job. It's you do the best you can, and then you had better be a praying parent. Now, we're not going to give up easily. There's a lot the Bible has to say about child training. But I'm telling you, there are cases where all you can do is pray. Because when you meet someone irrational, all your instruction and all the admonition of the Lord is worthless. You want to go try to convert a demon-possessed man? You first of all need to get rid of the demons so that he's in his right mind. You know how the Scripture calls it? He was then in his right mind? Well, when a man's in his right mind, you can then talk to him. How do you get demons out according to Matthew 17 and verse 21? Prayer and fasting. Keep that in mind. Also keep in mind that modern Bible versions don't have that verse. Isn't that precious? Fasting. We're dealing with the subject of fasting. We'll get back to children and demon possession soon enough. Fast and pray for your children. Boy, Job did that. What a perfect man Job was. Even when he didn't know about sin. Even when he thought his children were behaving rationally. He still prayed. He said, in case they may have cursed God in their heart. Now, is that a conscientious parent? They may have cursed God in their heart. So he prayed and asked God to forgive them the sin of their thoughts. 
That's a good parent. We're dealing with fasting, however, so let's continue. Look at 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings 21. Fasting shows your fervency. How does it show your fervency? Because you like to eat. I mean, the Word of God is not that deep. Fasting shows fervency because you like to eat. And by foregoing what you like to do, you're showing God that you are sincere about your prayers. 1 Kings chapter 21 describes a man named Ahab. Hardly a wicked man, a man more wicked than Ahab, married the most wicked woman, Jezebel. But let me show you something about Ahab. Verse 25. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. What a woman. Ahab was quite the man, wasn't he, who sold himself to work wickedness. And he did, verse 26, and he did very abominably in following idols, according to all things, as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And if you want to get sick, go read Leviticus 10, go read Leviticus 18 and 20 about what the Amorites were known for. Listen, downtown San Francisco has nothing new under the sun. The Amorites were known for it, and God spewed them out of that land because of their wickedness. Ahab sold himself to do all things that they did. What I'm trying to do is describe how bad Ahab was. Because I want to make a point about how effectual fasting is. Verse 27, And it came to pass, when Ahab heard those words, that is, a prophet spoke to him, that is, Elijah, verse 17, When Ahab heard those words, that he rent his clothes put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days. But in the day, his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. As bad as Ahab was, he prevailed with God through sackcloth and fasting. Sackcloth is a burlap bag. It's cloth out of which sacks are made. If any of you have ever been to a feed mill or worked on a farm, you know exactly what sackcloth is. Instead of the fine linen of a king's wardrobe, he took that off and put sackcloth on make himself physically uncomfortable, then deny himself food, make him physically uncomfortable on the inside to show his fervency before God, and he walked softly. God heard and saw and withheld judgment on even wicked Ahab when he humbled himself that way. You're familiar with the story of Nineveh. When Jonah went and preached to that city, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. They repented, they got in sackcloth, and they didn't eat or drink, neither did their beasts. Why, they put their pussycats in burlap bags. They put their beasts in burlap bags. I mean, they had horses and dogs and cattle and camels in burlap bags. According to the text, Jonah chapter 2, 
And God said he saw their works and he repented of the evil that he had threatened them with and he did not do it. And they saved their city because they fasted. It is a way to show your fervency in prayer. Now, there's a lot of people who think that fasting and other acts of self-deprivation, that's when you deprive yourself, are for the Old Testament only. Jesus said when some came to him that his disciples would fast more after he was gone. Now, does that sound like it's Old Testament only? He said they'd fast more after he was gone. The Apostle Paul, when he was sent forth on his first evangelistic trip, Acts 13, verses 2 and 3, fasted before he went. Acts chapter 14, before he ordained elders, he fasted before he did so. Paul was known as a man of fasting in your New Testaments. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5, Paul authorizes married couples to forego the marital relationship and eating to give themselves to prayer. When was the last time you and your spouse did that consciously? We are going to set aside a few days of concentrated prayer. We're going to fast and we're going to stay from each other. Paul authorized that for New Testament saints. Moses commanded that before they ever got the Ten Commandments. Read Exodus 19 tonight before you go to bed. They had to have three days where they hadn't thought of where they had food, the marital relationship, nice clothing, pleasant activities, sleep. How, can, how in the world can you prove that you're fervent in your prayer? Getting up early, fasting, abstaining from your wife, and all those things lend credibility to the sincerity of your praying. And Paul dealt with it plainly and authorized it there in 1 Corinthians 7. I've preached a whole sermon on fasting, so I'm going to leave it. I hope I've given you some verses, though, that will remind you of its importance. If you want to show God how sincere you are, you may have a Pharisee idea of praying, that it's all these hours. No, it's not but it's doing some things that cause you some pain, like foregoing food. Are you willing to do that to show your sincerity in prayer? And then make a short prayer to God. Do it with tears. The manner of praying is what I'm dealing with. Should you kneel when you pray? If you want to, go ahead and kneel. Kneeling is a scriptural position for prayer. Solomon, when he dedicated his temple, and I, I like Solomon's prayer, it sounds good. It's reverential. It gives glory to God. And when it was through, fire fell from heaven to light his altar. I like a prayer like that. He prayed on his knees with his hands lifted up to heaven. That was his position. You can try that. Daniel kneeled. Other men kneeled when they prayed. Kneeling is a position of begging. Kneeling is a position of humility. When men go before a king, and some of you may have seen this, and they would be, say, knighted, or they would be given an honor, they come before and kneel before the king. It's to put the king up and themselves down as, you can do with me whatsoever you will. You can knock my, my head off while I'm kneeled here. It's a position of humility and vulnerability. And that's why men kneeled in prayer. You may kneel. Paul and Luke kneel in the New Testament with 
a number, in, a, in a couple of prayer meetings, in Acts chapter 20 and Acts chapter 21, they kneeled down and prayed. When we have our public prayer meetings here, there's not a thing wrong with you getting down and kneeling. Do you know what goes through the mind, though, of a 20th century Christian? That's just not appropriate. That isn't cultured. We're too cultured then. Listen, spread these rows apart and get down on your knees. You say, well, why do I have to do that? Well, why did Paul do it? It's your choice. It's also partially my choice when it comes to public prayer meetings. But we're going to try to pray the Bible way. We have the Roman Catholic mentality of formal church services. Have you ever sat around and wondered what it was like when Paul held a church service? I've spent so much time wondering what his church services were like. I want to break up this formality of thinking we're in some religious entertainment show that runs according to some menu, and I'm up here leading everything. Listen, it's a congregation coming together, and I'm simply your servant. We can get on our knees. We can raise hands. We can bark out amens. We're going to get to those things. We can do those things because in Paul's day, they did them. Why, why are we so formal? Listen, when our ancestors met in the woods and met in caves and met in homes, they weren't all lined up in neat little rows with ties on, acting so formal. I'm not condemning ties. I'll, all, I'll wear a tie. It's expected of ministers. However, it may be expected for people to remain in their pews during prayer. You don't have to. And we'll see how many remember that when we have our next public prayer. You say, well, you're just forcing on us ritual. Paul did it. And if Paul dropped to his knees, what do you think those who were with him did? Stood? Daniel was on his knees. Jesus was on his face. If it was good enough for Jesus Christ to kneel down on his face, why, isn't, why can't we do it? We can kneel in prayer. You don't have to kneel in prayer. I mean, men pray standing, sitting. Remember I showed you from 2 Samuel 7, David prayed sitting. You can pray sitting. We don't have to kneel all the time we pray. But when was the last time you kneeled when we prayed and in public? It would show some humility to do that. You can pray anywhere at any time. Hannah prayed in her heart when she was there at the altar. Remember, Eli saw her mouth moving. There were no words coming out. He thought she was drunk. She was praying in her heart. Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer before Artaxerxes of Persia. He came before him one day with a sad face because of the state of affairs in Israel. He was afraid, and he prayed one verse prayer while he stood there before the king, realizing he was in trouble, when the king said, Why is your countenance cast down? He prayed in his heart. You can pray in your heart. You don't have to pray out loud. You can pray on your housetop. Peter did, Acts chapter 10 and verse 9. Didn't we already read that this evening? Why did he go up on his housetop? Well, that get, you get away from people that way. That may have been his closet. Remember how Jesus said, go into your closet and pray in secret? Peter went to the housetop to pray. 
pray alone as often as you possibly can. Jesus Christ taught and practiced private prayer. We read that this morning. The Pharisee is the man who loves to be seen praying in public. Look at just an example or two of Jesus praying, how he would get away from people to pray privately. There is a place for public prayer. Matthew chapter 14, there is a place for public prayer, but there's a very important place for your individual private prayer. Public prayer is easy. Do you know why? Because once you're here and everyone else prays, well, it's just the thing to do. Everyone else is doing it, and so you pray. You bow your head. You think about the words. That's easy. It's a lot harder to set aside time and go off by yourself and pray, and God knows it's harder. And Jesus Christ did it often. I have a whole string of verses here. I'll give you one. Matthew 14, 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. There's Jesus Christ. Send the people away, go apart, and pray alone. Make sure you have private prayer as a personal habit. Jacob went back across the river in Genesis 32 and was alone with God when he had that prayer meeting. His four wives were not there. His 12 boys were not there. He was alone in that prayer when he wrestled with God. I read when Elijah and Elisha and Peter raised the dead. Do you remember the events? They would go in and sh put everyone out and shut the door and go in and beg God for the life to return into the dead body alone. Why didn't they have a public prayer meeting? Wouldn't it have been more powerful if 20 were praying? There is a place for public prayer, but there is a place for private prayer where you alone beg God and show your sincerity. I'm going to lay emphasis on prayer partners. However, do you pray privately is the important point. Jesus taught private prayer. Families should pray together. Look at Genesis 35. Genesis chapter 35. Now, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about family prayer, but it says enough for us to know that we ought to do it. Genesis chapter 35, verse 1, And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. And they, verse 5, journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them. They journeyed, not just Jacob. Here is a family situation. God said, Jacob, I want you. Jacob brings his whole family. He tells them to put away their strange gods. He tells them to take a bath, and he tells them to change their clothes. That's why we dress up on Sundays. There's other places in Scripture that tell us you make a difference when you appear before God. Here's family prayer. You know, we read of Abraham that Abraham was called the friend of God because God said of Abraham, I know that he will command his house after him to keep my ways. What are one of the ways of God? Prayer. 
We know that Abraham had family prayer because God said of him, he will command his house to keep my ways. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, how do you serve the Lord? With prayer. Joshua had a praying family. Prayer partners is scriptural. Look at the words of Matthew 18, 19. Most of you know this promise. Many, many years ago, this verse became important to me. My wife is not in the room at the moment. But we have certainly had a great number of prayer requests answered when the two of us agreed and both prayed verbally out loud together for certain things. I could tell you stories about the birth of our children, the night in which the children were born, the sex, the weight, the health, whatever, that God would answer our, when God would answer our prayers. And it became such a blessing in our family that we wouldn't pray until the night we wanted to have the baby. One night only. We would get down and pray that it would be that night, what sex we were looking for, the health, the size, the speed of the delivery, etc. And about three hours later, he of no faith would be woken up of he of she of greater faith. And we would make our way to the hospital. And the Lord would bless. I mean, I could just enumerate many, many examples of how the Lord's guided and blessed in our lives because we get on our knees and pray together out loud with each other. She is my prayer partner. One of my prayer partners. I wish I had more. She is one of them. Matthew 18 and verse 19. Listen to this promise. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. It shall be done for them. Because of the unity, because of the agreement, God will answer the request. Now, God answers individual requests. We know that. I've made that point. However, if you've got something you're very serious about, grab a prayer partner. Grab a prayer partner. And listen, there's nothing better than to unite two people than to pray together. What is the saying that I've heard the family that prays together stays together? Sounds trite? Practice it and see if it doesn't work. It will. A time of family prayer together? Let your children verbalize their prayers before you and don't laugh at their feeble efforts. I've heard some amusing things from the mouths of children when they've prayed, but they're, they're as sincere as they know. And out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, God has to ordain wisdom. And I've heard some things sometimes that amazed me and rejoiced my heart with my children. Pray as a family and pray with partners. What were Paul and Silas doing in jail? What would you be doing if you'd been in jail with Paul? I'd been praying. The Romans weren't nice. I mean, they didn't like a lot of a big jail system. <laughs> Do you know how they kept it small? Execution. They prayed. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas prayed with Matthew 18 and 19. They were in agreement in prayer. James, Peter, and John, and Jesus were praying when Christ was transfigured. The four of them went up into a mountain to pray apart. Not the twelve. 
Not 12 plus 1, 13. 3 plus 1 equals 4. They left the others away. There's a time for you to sing, single out another member and pray with that partner. A man and a wife make an obvious prayer partner or a, an agreement for prayer. And especially when you read 1 Corinthians 7.5 where Paul authorized a man and his wife to forego the relationship and eating in order to prayer. Paul's assuming that men and women, a husband and a wife, will want to pray together about serious matters. But let me remind you men of 1 Peter 3.7, you better have, be in a good relationship with your wife or your prayers will be hindered. 1 Peter 3.7. I mean, when you kneel down to pray and the poor girl's crying because you've abused her so bad for the last two months or the last day, or you just threw her supper in the wastebasket and went out and got Hardee's instead because it was a poor job, or whatever the case might be, whenever that happens, you are cutting off yourself. You're hurting your own prayers. It's the unity of two. If they shall agree, if they shall agree, as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them. I'm going to finish in a hurry. Just listen, we won't turn. Public prayer meetings. Public prayer meetings are scriptural. It is scriptural when we pray publicly here. The, new, the book of Acts is filled with public prayer meetings. I don't care if it's Acts chapter 1 when they prayed for the replacement for Judas, or whether it's Acts chapter 4 and 5 where they prayed after the apostles were persecuted, or if it's Acts chapter 12 when Peter was in prison. They had public prayer meetings. Public prayer meetings are scriptural. Now, those who have ever been members of primitive Baptist churches, and it varies, and I'm not picking on any primitive Baptist members. Please have mercy on me. There is a tendency on the part of some of them to reject and resent public prayer meetings because the primitive Baptists don't do it. It's an innovation, they say. Yes, it's an innovation. We're innovating right along with Paul and Christ and the other apostles. And I'm not picking on any former primitive Baptists who are here, but you know what I'm talking about. They don't have public prayer meetings. I mean, they don't get together simply to all kneel down and pray. At least, I haven't heard about very many prayer meetings among the primitive Baptists. Someone might say, well, it sounds Arminian. That's okay. We do a lot of things that sound Arminian. I like a lot of things the Arminians do. You know why? Because they do a lot of right things. The Catholics do a lot of right things. Listen, if you can forego a wife, you ought to. You ought to be like the priests of Rome if you can take it. It doesn't matter who does it. Does God's Word teach it? And we will have public prayer meetings like we have. We will pray publicly together like we have. Jesus promised He would be there where two or three are gathered together in my name. Listen, even if our attendance is poor, we can have a prayer meeting that accomplishes things with God. How about lifting up hands when you pray? Oh, now you're going too far. I can accept a public prayer meeting, but lifting up hands while you're praying, that the charismatics do that. So what if the charismatics do it? The charismatics do some good things. You wouldn't believe the number of references I have on lifting up hands in prayer and I'm going to reserve that point to next Sunday. I can see that I'm, I don't have time. Brethren, I'm trying to keep my, the two sermons on a four-hour VCR tape. 
and it's tough. In fact, I'm going to reserve the rest of it for next Sunday. I know I just reversed my decision, but I have to as I see how much I have left under the manner of praying. What we've covered so far this evening on the manner of praying, pray in the morning. I hope you can see the value of that with God. Pray three times a day. And remember, those three times are designated in this order, evening, morning, and noon. Cry while you pray. Don't force it. But if you're not crying, and if you've never cried in prayer, ask yourself why. Since Christ did it, and since Hezekiah did it, and Hannah did it, and Ezra did it, and the whole nation of Israel did it, Judges 21. Fast. When was the last time you joined fasting with your prayers to accomplish something big in your life? And the example I want to leave with you, because I know it strikes at the hearts of many of us, our children. Kneel to pray. Get down on your knees. Let's remember that even publicly, to kneel from time to time and show God our humility by that outward form. Not an empty form. It's a form that God's Word authorizes. Pray alone as a personal habit. Make private, secret prayer an important part of your lives. Pray together with your family. Take time for family prayer. Teach your children to be children of prayer. Have a prayer partner, especially your spouse, and pray together over some matters. Now, we're talking about quite a bit of praying now, aren't we? Private prayer, partner prayer, family prayer, public prayer. Sounds good. Sounds good. And public prayer meetings are very scriptural. The New Testament church is recorded in the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles is one of their main acts. Public prayer meetings. May God bless us to practice the proper manner of prayer. And next Sunday, I'll mention briefly the lifting up of hands and show you how very scriptural it is, Old and New Testament, and the saying of amen in public prayer. May God bless each of you to become princes with God and prevail through properly praying. This kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting, and there are some petitions you'll only get by showing that extra degree of fervency by foregoing some physical pleasure.